Have a seat, grab your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 5, Exodus chapter 5. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is premarital counseling. I like it because it's one of the only times people come to see me as a pastor and they're happy to be there. Um, kidding, mostly. But, you know, I enjoy taking the time to meet with a couple who is in love and they're excited and, and I enjoy helping them prepare for a lifetime of marriage. And one of the big parts of that preparation is helping them know what to expect. Uh, the introduction of the book that I use with couples talks about how there are two extremes when it comes to marriage expectations. On one hand, some couples have been told and are expecting their first year of marriage to be really hard. They're going to fight and see the worst parts of each other and barely make it through. Then on the other hand, some couples have been told and are expecting their first year of marriage to be a fairy tale. Every day is going to be like the honeymoon and they will never fight and they will eat dinner every night by candlelight while staring in each other's eyes. So in that first session, I get to just totally shatter their expectations. And I get to tell them the truth is, you know, marriage is somewhere in between those two extremes most of the time. Yes, sometimes marriage is hard and it does take work. But yes, also, sometimes it will be romantic and fun. But the truth is, reality is often different from our expectations. And that's not just true in marriage, that's true in all of life. We have in our minds expectations about our jobs and our families and all sorts of stuff. We even have expectations about God and what we think he's going to do in our lives, what we think he should do in our lives. And when those expectations don't then become reality, that's when we get discouraged. That's when we become anxious or bitter or even depressed. You might feel like God has forgotten you. You might think that God has let you down. But here's what we see in Scripture, Isaiah 55. God says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's plan is different from our plan. And his plan is always better. We're going to see this truth play out today as we continue walking through the book of Exodus. First, let's recall what we've seen thus far in this book. You may remember God's people are living as slaves in Egypt and are receiving brutal treatment at the hands of the Egyptian ruler Pharaoh and his people. To the point that Pharaoh had begun to kill off their children. But God has raised up a deliverer, a man named Moses. A Moses who was born an Israelite, but who was raised in Pharaoh's palace by Pharaoh's daughter. After killing an Egyptian out of anger, he fled to the wilderness of Midian where he settled down, started a family, and lived as an anonymous shepherd. Until one day God showed up and he spoke to him out of a burning bush. God told Moses that he was calling him to go to Pharaoh and rescue God's people and bring them out of Egypt. Moses had a lot of objections, remember that? And God answered all of them. So Moses has now gone back to Egypt. He and his brother Aaron told the leaders of Israel that God had heard their cries and they were going home. Everyone was excited and worshiping God and it's like answer to prayer. It was a beautiful moment of unity and celebration. And then comes chapter 5, where we will be today. Let's walk through this chapter piece by piece and see what happens when God's reality differs 
from our expectations. Look with me at Exodus chapter 5. Let's just start in verses 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so after all the objecting and pleading, you remember from Moses, Moses obeyed God. He went in to meet the most powerful man on earth, the man who seemed to hold control over the entire nation of God's people. And watch what he said. Moses said, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. You may remember we learned in chapter 3 that whenever you see in your English Bibles that word Lord, L-O-R-D, in all caps, in the original language of the Bible, that is God's personal name, Yahweh. That is the most personal name for God, a name so personal that the Jews would dare not utter it. That's how we ended up with the word Lord in our Bibles today. So Moses and Aaron coming before Pharaoh, they were making abundantly clear that what they were saying to him was not coming from them. This was coming from Yahweh, the one true living God over all creation. And this was an announcement, a declaration. He said, thus says the Lord. And here's the famous phrase from God we'll see over and over. Let my people go. God wanted to make clear to Pharaoh that the people he held in slavery were not his people. The people belonged to Yahweh. He had made a covenant with them. They were his chosen possession. And as a result, Pharaoh must let them go so they could stop serving him and instead serve the Lord. How did Pharaoh respond? He responded in perhaps the most disrespectful way possible. He says, who is Yahweh? I don't know this guy you speak of. And I don't think Pharaoh here was asking innocently or ignorantly like he never heard of the God of Israel. Rather, it seems he was making a statement of defiance. He knew who Yahweh was, and yet he was dismissing him as insignificant and powerless and someone he had no concern for. And this sets up for us the chief battle we will see over the next several chapters in this book. In one corner, you have Pharaoh, who considered himself a god, versus Yahweh, who was and is God. And we'll see in the weeks to come that one of God's motivations in rescuing his people out of Egypt is so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would know him. And ultimately, they would. Let's keep going. Look at how Moses and Aaron responded, verses 3 through 9. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. Same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words." Moses and Aaron, they tried again to state their case, but it only made things worse. Pharaoh commanded that no straw be given to the people for this task of brick making. 
But they still had to make the same amount of bricks. They just now had to go and get their own straw. Look at verses 10 through 14. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? The outcome was just as we would have expected. The people couldn't do it. They couldn't fulfill the assigned number of bricks. And as a result, the foremen, those Israelite managers over the people, were taken and beaten and punished. So here's what they do. Look at verses 15 to 21. Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You're idle. That, that is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The foreman, they, they go back to Pharaoh and they complained. And what did Pharaoh do? Well, he blamed it on Moses and Aaron. And we see here what seems to have been the plan all along. Pharaoh wanted to drive a wedge between Moses and Aaron and the people. He knew taking the straw away and blaming it on Moses would sow distrust in the people toward their leader, and it worked. That's the response we see from the foreman. They cursed Moses and Aaron. They placed the full blame on them, even though Pharaoh was the one who issued the order. They said, the Lord judge you. Man, that's really strong, angry language. So the foreman who led God's people in their work, who were God's people, had completely turned now on Moses and Aaron. So here's how Moses and Aaron respond. Last verses, verses 22 and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Man, these are strong words to speak to someone, much less to God, the creator of the universe. Remember, Moses had heard directly from God, been called personally by him out of a burning bush. He had witnessed and performed miracles himself by the power of God. He had every objection answered and supplied by the Lord himself. But this was the last straw. Moses was exasperated and given out. He accused God of doing evil to his own chosen people. He questioned why God would ever send him, and he blamed God for not holding up his end of the deal. Moses did all this because his expectations did not line up with God's reality. And I want to linger on this thought for the rest of our message today. Look, we know there's going to be a resolution to this story. We know what's coming. 
But let's don't run ahead and miss this moment right here. Don't miss this tension and the storyline. We've seen it before, the frustration, the doubting, the wrestling with God's plan. But this time it's a bit different. Because this time Moses did what God told him to do. Think about it. God got Moses all sorted out in the wilderness. He sent him back to Egypt. He gave him Aaron. He gave him the miracles. He gave him the support of the people. He commanded him to go into the palace and boldly order the most powerful man on the planet to let thousands of his slaves walk free. And he did it. Moses did what God told him to do. He was strong. He was courageous. He was bold. He said, thus says the Lord, let my people go. Moses obeyed God and things got worse. Have you been there before? We did exactly what you thought you were supposed to do and then it all fell apart and then you fell apart. Maybe you questioned God or you blamed God. Maybe you even accused God of doing evil in your life. I've seen this with a lot of young Christians. You know, when they first get saved, they think, man, my life is, is going to be so much better and easier. Now that I've found Jesus, it's going to be great. For a while it is. You changed and you're growing and then wham, life hits you. And you think, hang on a second, God, this is not the way it's supposed to work. And this doesn't just happen to new Christians. Sometimes we're all tempted to think this way. We may not say it out loud, but we think, hey, I'm involved in church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm living for the Lord. So everything's going to go my way. And I'm going to have so much peace and happiness and success. God is going to take care of me. And then you get a scary medical diagnosis. Or you lose your job or your family faces a crisis. And reality doesn't match up with your expectations. The rug gets pulled out from under you and you're left looking at God thinking, why? Why did you do that? Why did you do it this way? Maybe you didn't say that. Maybe you took that unexpected crisis in stride. You said, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God for help. And you believed he is going to heal this sickness. He's going to fix my family. He's going to work all this out. You know, the Bible says the prayers of a righteous person are powerful. Asking it will be given to you. For everyone who asks receives. And so you prayed. You were faithful. Even in the face of unexpected suffering, you trusted and believed. You asked God in faith and God didn't do it. God didn't provide the healing the person you loved didn't turn back to God. The situation got worse after you prayed than before. You did what you thought was right, and you ended up with bricks, but no straw. Have you been there? If you haven't, you will be. And in those moments, in the discouragement, when the little faith you had is almost gone, that's when it becomes so tempting in our sinful flesh to do what Moses did. We look at Moses and we think, oh man, this guy, he just doesn't get it. But we can just as easily get there ourselves. And it's in those moments we're tempted to think, God didn't keep his end of the deal. I did my part, God didn't do his. That way of thinking at its root is really a form of the prosperity gospel or what is also known as the health and wealth gospel. 
The prosperity gospel is a false teaching made famous by televangelists. I'm sure you've seen those guys on TV and other mega rich preachers. They teach that God's will for you, for you is to be rich and to be in good health and to have a good life. So if you'll just have enough faith in God and obey him, he will give you these things. And while all of us who believe the Bible can clearly see that the prosperity gospel is what we call in the South a bunch of hogwash. And we think that we would never embrace those ridiculous beliefs. What I just described and what we see from Moses is really quite similar. It's thinking like this. If I do A and if I do B, then God will give me C. If I go to church and I give my tithe, then God will help me out financially. Or if I serve and help others and I stand up for truth and I do things the right way, then God will help me succeed in my career. Do you see that that's really not that much different from what the prosperity gospel teaches? But this is not what we see in the Bible. What we learn in God's word and what we see in this very story is that when God's reality is different from our expectations, that is not a time to turn in blame towards God. That's a time to turn in trust toward God. That's a time to take our discouragement and confusion and disappointment to him. And it's a time to remember two important things. So let me close this morning by sharing the two things we must remember when God's reality is different from our expectations. Here's the first. Number one, we must remember his promises. What makes the prosperity gospel so wicked is that it takes the beautiful promises of God in Scripture and twists them. It rips them out of context and makes them all about personal fulfillment. And in doing so, they become cheap and trivial. Think, for example, with me about the amazing verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. That is like the John 3, 16 of my generation. It is one of the most beautiful promises of God in Scripture, but I think it's also the most misapplied verse in Scripture. Prosperity gospel preachers and Instagram users alike love this verse <laughs> because here's what it says. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Do you see how easily, when ripped out of its context and thrown onto a coffee cup, this could be misunderstood? Oh, God has a wonderful plan for me, and I'm going to have this amazing, bright future, and Satan's going to try to bring evil in my life, but God will give me a rich harvest of blessings in time. That means God wants me to have my dream job and marry the, the one for me and have one boy and one girl who always eat their vegetables and go to bed on time every night. God wants me to be happy and hashtag blessed. What's wrong with that interpretation? Well, here's what's wrong. That's not at all what Jeremiah meant and how the original audience would have received it in his day. First off, Jeremiah did not write this verse to an individual. He wrote it to the nation of Israel as they prepared to face their worst nightmare. Babylon, a foreign nation, was about to conquer them and drag them off into exile. And Jeremiah just told them literally one verse before in Jeremiah 29.10 that this exile was going to last 70 years. He told them to settle down in that foreign land, to seek its welfare, 
And then he said, after all that long time of suffering where, yeah, most of you are going to die in that foreign land, then God's going to bring you out. Then he will give you a hope and a future. This is not a verse about material blessings or about obtaining all your hopes and dreams. It's actually a million times better than that. So let me reassure you, if you love this verse, you have it displayed in your home or even tattooed on your body, don't worry, you don't need to schedule the removal yet, okay? (laughs) This verse actually does apply to Christians and is infinitely more encouraging than any promise of earthly prosperity. As we've learned throughout this series, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So Jesus is the ultimate future and hope promised to Israel. And through faith in him, we too can become part of these same promises. And the future and the hope and the welfare that God speaks of in Jeremiah 29, 11 are true, but they're an eternal hope and future and welfare. In the New Testament, we see that God does not promise his people material wealth or good health. I mean, just tell that to Jesus and his disciples and the endless number of Christian martyrs throughout history. Go to China or Iran or Saudi Arabia and tell the Christians there about the prosperity gospel. They will laugh you off their continent. If Jesus and the New Testament authors promise us anything, they promise us suffering. Jesus said in John 15, he said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Following Jesus guarantees difficulty and suffering. That is the way of our Savior and Master. But here's what we learn in Jeremiah 29, 11, 10 through 11. It's through suffering that glory comes. It was through 70 years of exile that a new start for Israel came. It was through the cross that came the resurrection. And it's through a difficult, costly Christian life that comes the glory of heaven. And here's how this point connects to Exodus and Moses. Moses had his own misunderstanding of a Jeremiah 29, 11 type verse. Remember, God told Moses that Pharaoh was going to harden his heart. He was not going to let the people go very easily. This whole thing's going to be hard, Moses. But it seems that Moses focused only on the part that says the people are going to get to go and they're going to go to a new land. He missed the context of difficulty first so that when the difficulty came, he wasn't expecting it. And as a result, he became discouraged. He blamed God. And here's how this connects to us. When we find ourselves like Moses and we've obeyed God and we did what we thought we should, we did what we thought was right, and God's reality doesn't line up with our expectations, remember God's promises. Remember all of God's promises. Remember the promises like James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where he writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This promise reminds us that in moments of discouragement and trials actually work in our favor. Because God uses them to grow our faith and strengthen us more. God's ways are not our ways. 
And often things won't turn out or look the way we hoped they would. But that just means God is working in your life. That means that God is preparing you for glory. And one day all the beauty of Jeremiah 29, 11 will be yours when you see Jesus. So when God's reality differs from our expectations, remember his promises. And here's the second thing, last thing to remember. Number two, we must remember his character. His character. When Moses complained to God, he said something that revealed the reason for his discouragement. He said, God, why have you done evil to this people? Here's what we learn. Moses forgot the character of God. And so he misrepresented God and accused him of doing evil, which is impossible. Moses had already learned that God is holy at the burning bush, meaning he can't do evil. And he had learned that God will keep his promises to his people, meaning he especially can't do evil to them. But Moses forgot those things. He expected God to do things his way. Rather than trusting in who God is, Moses was trusting in who he wanted God to be. This is also what's at the root of a prosperity theology. Many people today worship who they want God to be rather than who God is. But contrary to what some preachers on TV will tell you, God is not a cosmic vending machine where you put in the right amount and you push the right buttons and out come all your hopes and dreams. Listen, God doesn't owe us anything. He is not in our debt. He is not obligated to do anything for us or be who we think he should be. Job 41, God told Job, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God does not owe us and our good deeds do not put him in our debt. Simply put, God does what he wants and he does them in the way he wants. And though that may sound harsh to us, here's why this is actually great news. Because a God who can become indebted or obligated to people, listen, a God who does things our way instead of his way, a God who only serves to make our lives easier is a small, puny God who has been stripped of his power. That would be a God who is unable to redeem bad situations for good. That would be a God who's not in control. And that would mean that a God of our own making is really no God at all. But praise the Lord, that's not our God. We have a God who is in control of all things, who knows much, much better than we do. Who we have a God who's not obligated, but who chooses willingly and freely to love you and to work for good in your life. So when we obey and do the right things and yet our expectations are shattered on the floor, we must remember God's character, his actual character revealed in his word that yes, he is good and loving and gracious, but he is also all-knowing, present in all times, in all places. He's already been to the future and back and he's perfect in all of his wisdom. When our expectations don't line up with God's reality, remember his promises and remember his character. I was thinking about that this week and reminded about one of my spiritual heroes who's a man named Jim Elliott. 
Jim Elliott was born in 1927 and spent his entire life called to be a missionary. After college, Jim set out with a friend to the South American country of Ecuador. And while serving there, he learned about a remote tribe in the jungle that was completely unreached called the Harani people. And he set his heart and felt called to reach them for Jesus. He spent years training, learning about these people, and he and a few other missionaries with him crafted a plan. The Harani people were very hostile to outsiders. So the missionaries flew a small plane over their village and lowered a bucket with gifts. They used a loudspeaker to speak friendly phrases in their native language, knowing they came peacefully. And after months of this, they began to see signs of progress. The people seemed receptive, and they even made first contact with a few of the tribe's members. After a few days, they invited more of the people to come meet them, and one day they did. Out of the jungle came several of the Harani people, except they came with spears in hand. And they killed all five of those missionaries, including Jim Elliott. Many people in the United States lamented this tragedy. Young, godly men who had committed their lives to being missionaries and sharing the gospel, they were killed before they ever had a chance to convert a single person. But the story didn't end there. Jim Elliott's wife, you may know Elizabeth, one of the other missionary sisters named Rachel Saint, they continued this work. They didn't back away or run back home. They kept praying. And eventually they made contact with this remote tribe themselves. And through their perseverance, they built relationships with these people. And over time, they were somehow accepted by the Harani people. They even met and forgave the very men who killed their husband and brother with a spear. And many in that tribe came to know Jesus. Jim Elliott and those other missionaries are examples of the way God often works. What we may consider tragedies and disappointments, God sees as vehicles for his greatest works. See, our perspective is limited. We can't see all of time. We are finite beings, but we have an infinite God who can and who is always working. The question is, will you trust him? Even when things don't go your way, will you still trust him?